Welcome to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and Dee. I'm Maz Mary. And I'm Dana DelVal. Whether you're a person on an addiction sobriety path, or you know someone who is, we're here to talk about our journey with it. And more importantly, we want to help end the stigma and shame of alcoholism. And we want to bring some hope and laughter along the way too. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. It's going to be funny every single time. Um, good morning, Dr. Mary. How are you? I'm grand, lover. How are you? I'm pretty well too, thank you. Uh, it's a good Thursday because it's Guest Thursday and we have a new to us, although I feel like maybe I've known her in another life, kind of. I feel like maybe we're going to become best friends in the eight minutes that I've now spent with her. But we have a new guest with us who um, I'm excited about. So let's just bring her in rather than talk about her. Please join us in welcoming Margaret Swift Thompson from Embrace Family Recovery. Hi, Margaret. Hello. Good morning. Thanks so good much. Good morning, for Margaret. Good morning. I wish everyone could hear the banter before you go live. That's actually quite lovely. So just throwing that out there behind the scenes is really cool. Anyone who gets to be a guest, it's kind of oh, that's that's kind of you to say. I will say it's not always quite that calm. Sometimes it's um, you know, what am I doing? About twelve seconds before we go on, but that's all right. That, that would have been You're a mild. Releasing a Blu-ray of behind the scenes for Christmas, actually. I, I think some of your clips would be fun. I um. <laughs> I had that kind of moment when I had to install do the Chrome before I came on. So I understand. But look, we're all good. We're here. Here we are. And so far, so good. So we will hope that that holds. Margaret, I want to push or put up your website uh, in, so that people can get that Embrace Family Recovery. So I found you through the fantastic Lillian Cutter, who is our marketing expert, um, who is sort of trolling the internet, looking for guests who would be interesting and valuable, not just for Maz and me, but for our audience as well. And you rose to the top of the heap. So let's start with the question we always start with, Margaret, which is tell us your here to there story and your here can start wherever you'd like it to. Yeah, thank you. I'm honored to be here and thrilled to be a part of this and kind of excited I rose to the top. That's a big deal when you're marketing yourself. So, it is a big deal. Woohoo! Um, I would like to say that my journey has been very convoluted. I kind of came in through the back door, which I don't think is that atypical with people in recovery. But uh, real quick, born and raised on the island of Bermuda to loving family with no active addiction that I was present to see or aware of. Generationally, there was some secret keeping, so I'm sure there was things in the trees if we shook them hard enough. Uh, my family with a lot of the stiff upper lip European expectation of pull up your bootstraps, make your own success, don't air your dirty laundry in public, and out comes Margaret, who is like the postman's child, who's like telling everyone everything, very in your face, and being the caregiver and people pleaser from probably about this big. And uh, struggled greatly with my body image and weight. Mm -hmm. And honestly, my food addiction is my primary addiction, but I never dealt with it until I landed in addiction when it came to codependency and my relationship with my ex-fiance. Trudged through life, went through some traumas and some struggles, um, really had a hard time figuring out how to be in the world other than helping everyone. Mm. 
which many of us who ended up in the field of the helping profession come for various reasons, and they usually show up along the way. And I ended up um, getting into HIV prevention. I was never going to work with people with addiction. Irony, right? Never say never. And I was working in Bermuda. I was, I was known as the sex lady because I came back from the United States to a very conservative country with very high HIV rates and started talking about it. And it wasn't exactly warmly welcomed. So I've always been someone who's kind of pushed the fray in my professional world to, to go for putting voice to what was important, even if it was uncomfortable. Mm. And uh, what ended up happening was I was slowly making my way in and um, loving the challenge. And my dating life had always been a mystery in that I could not feel safe and secure in relationships. And I heard very young, um, fat equals unlovable. Mm. And I think I internalized that pretty hard. And so when I moved into relationships, I settled for a lot of crumbs. I didn't know that I could have more or better. And I was almost desperate to be loved. And so when um, I met my ex-fiance, at that point, I was hosting a television show. I was running a private practice. I was working in business. I was doing a lot of things. And um, unbeknownst to me, he had a compulsion. Those are his words. And um, I received an anonymous letter in the mail to my day job. And I honestly thought it was someone saying, lady, you're too fat to be on TV. Get, get off TV. That's what I was expecting. And instead, I received um, knowledge of his behavior that he was exposed to HIV, I could possibly be. And um, I had no idea the cops were watching his behavior and I would bring shame to my family and yada, yada. Anonymous. Yeah, it's a good thing to breathe after that. And when, when I received that letter, it was one of those moments that I've seen and witnessed in so many family members I've served since I got into working in the field of recovery and working passionately for family members, is that moment when the puzzle piece comes into focus. So there was this weird thing, there was this weird thing, I'm asking direct questions, getting answers that made my ear feel okay, but necessarily my gut, but I was okay because he was loving me, right? Like all of that garbage that I brought into the relationship. And so um, fast forward from there, it was true. My gut knew it as soon as I read it. I confronted him, just said, be honest. It became public. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. And I shut down. I quit everything. I quit my television job. I quit my, I quit. And you know how we, you contacted me and we said, you know, you asked if this was a day that could work because you had somebody who wasn't able to make it. And I said, no such thing as coincidence. Yeah. I was afforded the opportunity to go to Hazelden Betty Ford as a student. In two weeks, I uprooted from Bermuda in August after this crap storm and landed at Center City, Minnesota, having no idea what I was getting myself into, but knew old mentality it looked good to the outside world. I'm going to one of the best treatment centers in the world to get training. I can't be a mess. I'm good, right? And so wore the mask and headed off. And that ended, that relationship ended. And there was a lot of, lot of crap that went down with that, but that ended and it did not end because of me. Wow. So when we talk about we as loved ones get as affected by this disease as the person with it, that was true for me. I was 
very ill in that relationship. And I would have stayed. I know I would have. So again, higher power does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So when I landed in Center City, I was given two things that I had to do. I had to read the big book, three things. I had to read the big book because I'd never read it. I had to go to an Al-Anon meeting because I shared a little bit of my story and the person in charge says, okay, you're staying. You've got to go to Al-Anon. You've got to get a therapist. So those were my three things. I opened the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I probably read 30 pages and I shut it as fast as I could because all it kept jumping off of the page at me was food, not alcohol. And I couldn't face it. <clears throat> I went to Al-Anon and my first experience with Al-Anon was one of those priceless moments when you walk in the door and you go, what in the hell have I got myself into? Because sitting around that table in the basement of a church, which was scary enough, was this amazing group of average age of 70 year old women in bib overalls. And I'm like, is that the uniform? Should I be wearing bib overalls? <laughs> and um, they welcomed me and they never forced me to share. And the thing that I think changed me in those tiny moments of change that grew to be my recovery today was the number one thing I received in that room was positive, unconditional regard. No one told me what to do. Nobody told me how to fix this, what to do. Nobody. They shared and they allowed me to share when I was ready and they didn't run out of the room aghast. Mm -hmm. And thus my journey into Al-Anon and 12-step recovery began. And it was a painful one because through the entire process of the next seven years, I used food the entire time out of control. Yeah. And I'm working with clients in substance use disorder, doing the same things with substances that I'm doing with food. I mean, talk about a painful existence, a fraudulence, yeah. a sense of <clears throat> self-loathing, you know? And so it was a painful chapter. But on the flip side, what I was starting to get by the grace of my higher power and the people around me in 12-step recovery was life-changing in a really good way but I couldn't get honest about my addiction until I started seeing the damage it was doing to my children, to be quite frank. Mm. That was my bottom. So where am I now? I don't know if I should jump through all that. Cause there's, you know, you have a long story. Every one of us does, but I would say that the one year recommendation, many clients have been given who I've worked with in the treatment world of staying out of relationships for a year, you know, get a pet after you keep mm -hmm. a plant alive. Once the pets continuing to eat and do well, then maybe consider a relationship. I took that advice, met my now husband after I was in that year. Now here's the irony of you again, higher power, right? I uh, met a man who was a dairy farmer, never had he left Polk County, Wisconsin, other than a quick trip here or there. And he was a Baptist by background who met the sex lady from the island of Bermuda who said everything that was on her mouth, right? Like talk about two worlds colliding. <laughs> and uh, on our first date in the pizzeria in Dresser, Wisconsin, which is probably a population of, I don't know, a thousand, mm -hmm. spilled my whole story on our first date as you do when you're Margaret Thompson <laughs> and um, said, you're not going to waste our time, your time. If it's going to work, it's going to work. And the guy looked at me and said, I am so sorry you went through that. And I'm like, what? That's it. You know? 
And uh, we celebrated 24 years of marriage on Monday. Wow. Fantastic. Congratulations. Brilliant. Yeah, considering how damaged I was leaving the last relationship, mentally, physically, spiritually, I mean, I had a life sentence on my head at the time. If you think about the time in our history where the AIDS, absolutely did. Yep. Um, I didn't think I could be loved, and I I didn't think I could love in a healthy way. And I truly believe my high power, my sponsors, and the twelve steps of recovery have afforded me that ability, no doubt about it. Well. Wow, that's an extraordinary story. Um, and uh, oh, I, you know what? This is so funny. So this is my mom, a comment from my mother. And I was thinking this too. The bib overalls were here precursor for the dairy farmer. I was at absolutely mother. I thought <laughs> the exact same thing. I almost I, said something. And you then know what? I, actually, I thought that too. I thought, nope, I'm going to take this moment to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the irony of it is I bought a pair of bib overalls and proudly wore them. You know, they had a lot of give in them while I was struggling with my uh, food addiction. So it worked really well. For a good pair of bib overalls, quite frankly. Um, All right. That's the thing about bib overalls. You you either look like someone who means business (laughs) and you're sort of like, don't mess with me. I've got my bib overalls on. Or you look like a Christian rock star. There's a kind of a weird one or the other. I'm not sure I fit in either of those, but we'll have to. Ref- I'll explore that. <laughs> yeah, this is thinking that. about that, Margaret. Yeah. Back to us. You know, I think it's important don't to put mention the overalls on. Go ahead, put them on. Don't put the overalls on, and, but don't do this. Don't put them on and then pick up a tambourine. You should be fine. <laughs> okay, point taken. I wanted to say that I think it's important for anyone out there because this was a big struggle for me. And I'm a clinically trained person. Go figure what we don't see in ourselves. Mm. That um, the trauma of that letter, it was life changing and saving, but it was devastating. <laughs> to this day, nearly 30 years later, I receive a letter without a return address and I get a slight pause. Mm. It was full on panic in early recovery. So when anyone says, I'm not sure I have trauma. I'm not sure what I think about trauma. You have to be in the military to have trauma, which is very true. The trauma is everywhere. Mm -hmm. That was a trauma imprint Mm -hmm. that stuck that I had to find a label for at some point on the journey because I just thought, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? I would judge myself for it, but there's no doubt about it. That was a trauma imprint. And I think it's really important for people to validate those truths in themselves. They don't have to be the big ones you hear about or are aware of in the media and the news, it can be a smell, a sound, a, a letter without a return address. I think it's important for people to know that. Boy, I really appreciate that because um, I say all the time, there was no physical abuse while Maz was drinking. There was very little verbal abuse and no intentional emotional abuse. And yet there was absolutely trauma. And it took me a while to get comfortable saying that because I don't want to minimize other people's really profound trauma. And I don't want to pretend like 
I went through what other people have been through, nor do I want to dismiss what I've been through, what we've been through. You know, I, yes. I think trauma has a lot of gray area to it. Um, more than just, I drove over an IED in Afghanistan, or I was horrifically raped, or, you know, there is big T trauma, which I feel very blessed not to have experienced, but that does not negate the small T trauma of, of life, quite frankly. That's not um, exclusive to people who are in or around addiction. That's just life. Correct. I agree with you. And I think a good way to put it is big T's little T trauma. Yeah, it's um, that was an important moment for me to get comfortable saying what I lived through was traumatic. Mm -hmm. um, it freed me up to then be okay with having stayed. Yeah, I needed that. I needed to forgive myself for staying in trauma. Mm. Well, I I and. My analogy that it's not unique to me that I use a lot with families to understand that piece. <clears throat> and this was my experience too in that relationship. We tolerate intolerable behavior from people we love. Why mm -hmm. is that? On the outside, people look in and go, why would you stay? Get out of Dodge. What is wrong with you, right? Everyone has an opinion. It's like some other body part we all have, which we sometimes don't want to pay attention to. But the reality is that when we're in it, it's like that frog in the pot that the water starts boiling when they're in it versus throwing a pot up frog in the boiling water. And I think we have to give grace to ourselves. First yeah. and foremost, we love the person we're with. We knew them prior to or as they were or through the whole journey. And as this disease progresses, we also get less well and tolerate more intolerable behavior. And part of the drive is we will somehow find that magic comment, that magic peg, that okay. magic fix to bring the person back to us that we know is in there. Oh, you just summed up about eight years of my life, Margaret. So yes, absolutely. Uh, another comment. Boy, do I like you. You just get to the real. No excuses, no dithering, just zero right in and get to what matters. No wonder you were on the top of the heap for guests, whatever that heap was. It was a good heap. I, I you know, and and other people are part of that conversation too. Thank um, you so much, Bonnie. Yeah, I think um you can't adequately explain to someone why you stay. No if they've not lived through something like it. And, and what you said is a thousand percent true. I met Maz Mary as this bright, inquisitive, international, sciencey, kind, gentle man. And the water temperature went up together on us. So I think we both knew something was wrong, mm -hmm. but we didn't know how to fix it. <clears throat> and we came at it from very different ways. Right. And I just liked enough about him that I was unwilling to walk away. And then I didn't know how to walk away. And probably to be fair, I didn't know if I deserved to walk away. That's a big one. Yeah. I so, relate to that one. Yeah. Um, and I can say, thank God I didn't walk away because now I, now I get to reap the reward of the hard work. But I never want people to feel like this is the norm. 
are an exception. Um, and so if you do walk away, it's not because you're a failure or because you didn't try hard enough or you didn't want it badly enough. Um, it's because that was the right decision for you. Absolutely. And the work to be done to recover. So one of the things many family members struggle to understand, right, with the disease, the selfish nature of it, the person's consumed by a disease telling them they need this to survive. And everyone who's the biggest threat is the people that love them the most because they're going to intervene the fastest. So we're lied to and pushed out the fastest. But yeah. when that person's in that place, we're doing what we can to reach in because we know they're in there. The struggle is recognizing when recovery happens, family members think it's going to be this wonderful. <sighs> and what I find visual, I'm visual. So what I find is we're already here. And in between us is the disease, the drug, the alcohol, the food, whatever. This is us. And as recovery starts and the person in recovery, substance use disorder, addiction starts moving into recovery, they feel more far away than us from us when we think we should be getting together. Right. Mm -hmm. And if we as family members do not do our own work in parallel tandem, we won't make it. But recognize, sorry, my phone is hitting something, making a horrible noise. There we go. <laughs> recognize that as we work our parallel journey, it brings us together. Mm -hmm. but it's going to feel like this. And that feels so wrong after you've suffered through the pain of the active addiction. So many family members really struggle at that point, even from the place of, good Lord, sorry. Even from the place of, why is this not feeling closer? They're still selfish. I hear that a lot. They're still selfish. It's all about them. And what I try and do is encourage family members to give themselves self-care. The difference of a person in recovery, working a program, being selfish, it's going to bring them back to you. Yeah. In addiction, it's going to take them away yeah. and keep them away. Wow. Yeah. I, sure, I, I got, we were, we were taught that. Go ahead, Messi. We, we were taught that, you know, you, they, one of the things I, I was taught was, you know, addiction, um, Recovery is hard. It's selfish. You've got to just think about you. And that's when I heard the, the first time I heard the phrase, you can't fix anyone until you fix yourself. And then, you know, the, the whole adage about, you know, in an emergency on a plane, you've got to put your own oxygen mask on first. Absolutely. Otherwise, you can't help anyone. So it and is. A, right. Yeah, you have to. You know, it is. A, it's a selfish act to get better, which is weird. It is, but it isn't like I, I'm big on words. Words have power. So my feeling is, is it's selfish to stay in the disease that's tearing you from everyone who loves you. It is not yes. selfish to do the care. It is self care that actually gives you the life you desire for yourself and for the people that love you. So it's changing the lens from selfish oh. in the ugly term to self care. And it's still going to feel selfish, but it's different because it brings you together. Oh, I, Margaret, I think, that statement alone is why we were the top of the heap. <laughs> Thank you, Maz. Can I, I call you Maz or am I supposed to talk to Mary? No, you can call him Maz. He would prefer you call him Maz. Maz. He's Maz. not crazy about Dr. Mary. It's just a thing I do. I like both. Yeah. 
Um, I, I, one of the things that this is really raising for me is that <clears throat> because I did not go through a program mm -hmm. um, for lots of reasons, I, I couldn't understand how Maz seemed to almost overnight have reached this new place of Zen and this, this very calm, rational plateau when I still felt very out of control. Um, and thank goodness he did because um, we, we have a couple friends who were in therapy for marriage counseling. And the therapist said something so true to them. He said, when, when one of you is in the hole, whatever that means for you, a, a healthy relationship, the other one reaches down and helps you out. An unhealthy relationship, the other person jumps in the hole and then you're both stuck there. Be the person who reaches out. So what was so profound was that when Maz came home from rehab, I was suddenly the sort of out of control one yes. because I finally had a place to unravel. And thank goodness he was in this self-care mode. So as I was unraveling, he said to me, basically, I'm here for you and it will be okay. Mm -hmm. Which was paramount. If he had... I had been so tightly wound for so long trying to control everything and fix everything that I really needed him to, to be outside of the hole so that I had space in that hole to do the work that I needed to do. Um, and I think some of why I felt free and safe to do that was because I had watched him unravel and do self-care and I had seen what it did for him. So it's interesting you bring all this up because it brings up lots of different thoughts for me. First of all, I like to believe that Maz had, and you answer this Maz, people he would go to when you were spinning out to give him support, to allow him to come back to you and be like, I'm here, I'm not going anywhere. Like he had already created a team or a community or whatever resources to help him that it wasn't a solo flight at that point. Is that fair, Maz? Has that no, true? it wasn't. I mean, that was, that, was my, that was my treatment group. Right. And my counselor. Right. So... He had an army holding him from dropping into the hole, mm -hmm. which we don't give credence to. Mm -hmm. What I experience a lot of times, and I'm wondering, um, Dana, if this is true for you, when the loved one goes to treatment, which is a luxury because a lot don't even get that. And I wish more did, and I hope more do. But when they go to treatment, they're plopped in this beautiful place of like-minded education, resources, self-care, all that good stuff. The family maybe gets a phone call a week, maybe gets invited to a family program. Mm -hmm. And I call it when Maz goes away, you go into withdrawal because your drug of no choice, a walking, talking human being just walked out of your purview of control and you're left with me. And we haven't been dealing with me as family members for up to decades because our focus has been solely on them. Yes. So we do this. Some of us are like, ah, spa, relax. I can sleep better. And there's truth in some of that. They're safe. 
But then we get the phone calls from them in treatment saying how crappy it is and the roommate snoring and the food sucks and I don't want to stay here. And the addict behavior in us jumps into, oh gosh, got to fix this too, right? So we don't even really breathe. Most of us in that stage don't find Al-Anon or some therapist or community of support. I was a therapist working with people before I understood this disease. Shame on me because I had no business doing it. There's a lot of clinicians out there who don't understand this family disease and don't know how to treat it. And so I'm grateful I have that specialty, but I also know that we have to teach people where to find the right resources so they understand what they're dealing with. Because there's an educational component for the family members that we don't give them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. All of that is just a great big yes. I got <clears throat> probably sicker than I've ever been in my entire life. And that includes getting COVID pre-vaccine. I was sicker when Maz was in the hospital and the early part of rehab. Yes, you were. Um, and I know it was because finally, finally, my body just said, okay. And it just fell apart. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, yeah. It's, uh, mm. So in my world of working, why I created Embrace Family Recovery was because I've heard from too many people, my gosh, I've got so much from a family program, which I love. That's important. But I wish I had someone for me. Someone who would be with me as I'm trying to set boundaries. I'm trying to learn how to communicate. I'm trying to speak my truth when I'm walking on eggshells, fearing that's going to trip them into relapse or like someone to come alongside me as a family member to help me, because this is not a trajectory that usually goes straight up. It's usually a bumpy ride, whether it's pre-treatment, during treatment, after treatment. And so that was part of my catalyst. It's like, we need to offer more. If we call this a family disease, which I believe it is, it's generational, it is across the immediate family, then we owe it to our culture and our community to offer family recovery. Mm -hmm. Stop putting it, the onus and the responsibility on the identified patient. They get well and we're good. How do we know that's not true? Two ways. How many of us can go through our family tree and see that there was an addict somewhere else in there and so the disease because I always focus on separating the person from the disease. Always. It's vital to get well. It's vital to get rid of shame, self-loathing. We've got to do that. So if we believe the disease is a parent, if we have parents who are addicts, we're taught by the people and the disease how to survive in the world. We then find ourselves either in addiction or married to an addict. Is that coincidence or is that some of this genetics and some of this trauma and some of this training? If we don't start looking at it as a whole family system deserving of really good care, we're going to have some walking wounded people around the identified patient who's gotten well. Mm -hmm. That's not acceptable, in my opinion. Not acceptable. It's not good enough. We mm -hmm. all deserve help. Yeah. Well, and um, I think so much of, of addiction is the codependency of that relationship um and so if you're not both getting help then then it can be easy to unintentionally trigger someone push someone either way back into old habits and behaviors um bob has a question for you margaret how do you look at foods today is it a friend foe, or just something needed to exist 
you analyze everything you eat or are you comfortable with having to think about your selections socially and individually? It's a great question, Bob. Great question, because we really haven't talked about my food addiction, which is, I, I got honest about that when I started seeing the damage to my children. I had a one and a four-year-old when I got into recovery with food addiction. I would say I still, I you know, I'm an evolution. My sponsor, one of my sponsors says, when you're um, green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're rotting. I don't want to be ripe. I don't want to rot. I want to stay green. But that means in my addiction to food, it's an evolution. We hear a lot in recovery for all of us. There's this onion thing, right? we got layers we got to work through. So I would say I'm a hell of a lot better with my relationship with food. But what I had to have for my recovery was a 12-step program and a very structured way of eating. My I get a lot of flack from people who are addicts and alcoholics who say food is not an addiction. And you know what? Here nor there, not going to fight it. That's everybody's choice to come to terms with. For me, it is. I did the same thing with food that I witnessed my clients do with substances their whole journey. Um, so for me, I have to stay away from certain foods. Mm. And in early recovery and through to today, I am very diligent about what I eat and how I eat. So I wouldn't say it's an easy relationship, but what is phenomenal about it is it's a hell of a lot easier than being face first, stuffing myself with the crap, trying to feel better. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember coming in and I got told this program requires certain certain behaviors. And I remember thinking, I can't do that. I'm going to be more obsessed with food than prior to being here. <clears throat> what did I know? Right. I had to just trust the process and work the program. And that's what I do. And I still do. Okay, I have a follow-up question for you. I don't mean to be trite here, but how do you live with the luxury of a dairy farm, cream butter, and so on? <laughs> so the old mother always cuts to the chase. I, think. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, first of all, I don't live anywhere near a dairy farm. My dear sweet husband, thank God, off the dairy farm before we got married, because I don't think it would have happened. Because I'm not meant to be a dairy farmer's wife. So he's got the background and boy, do I love cheese. So I hear you, but I am grateful to say that I am abstinent from sugar and gluten since 2005. And so one day at a time through grace of my program and my higher power, I put that down because those are my trigger foods. And those are what send me to the place of needing more. And there's never an off switch. And so I work hard to stick to that program a day at a time. And if you told me yeah. then I was going to do it, because it's like an alcoholic. It's like saying to an alcoholic, only have an ounce of bourbon three times a day. Yeah. <laughs> a substance addiction where we don't have to ever have the substance is hard enough. And I'm not disputing how hard that is. A necessity to survive is eat. And I do see food as a function rather than this relationship that was an obsession and a almost euphoric experience when I was actively eating that way. So Margaret, just to wrap this up, because we could go on and on because it's just been so unbelievably interesting, but um, I know that Mass has to get to a meeting in a little bit and you likely have things to do as well today too. Talk That's about, oh, thank you. Talk <laughs> about what, what is the, core mission of Embrace Family Recovery and how can people work with you? Are you only in person? Are you, did, you, did COVID give you the opportunity to think bigger, broader, and more expansively? So I worked for Hazel and Betty Ford for 20, 
three years and um, very proud of that tenure. Learned from some of the best in the West. Uh, COVID afforded me the opportunity to do what I wouldn't have done for myself, which was to say, you know what, if this didn't exist, what would I do? And what I decided was I was going to get certified as a coach, which broadens the horizons to be able to work with anyone in the world, which is pretty remarkable, right? Um, maintain my license as a LADC, but broaden my horizons. And so I launched Embrace Family Recovery because I wanted to be able to be that co-creative thinking partner for families to assist them on the journey, no matter where they're at. So they'd have somebody to call, somebody to meet with, somebody to reach out to. So clients and I work virtually. And one of my favorite families I've worked with was seven of them. And we had the Brady Bunch on the screen. Like that was just the coolest thing. And, you know, part of it is psychoeducational. Part of it is understanding that we have an obsession and preoccupation as family members that we have to treat or we'll keep finding the next fixer upper. Because I don't know about you, Dana, but I got the biggest high ever if I could fix somebody else. Oh, yeah. That was a big, big part of my life, too. Yeah. Bigger than any food gave me. And what I had to get honest about was that's part of why I didn't want to give up the job of fixer, controller, manager, right? So I had to recognize the come along with that is when it goes badly and I'm in charge, it's on my shoulders. And that felt like garbage. Mm -hmm. So clients work with me virtually. Um, I'm looking to launch a group, which will be something that people who identify as family members come into a closed group where we work on topics and they work together as a community. I always, always with every client I work with encourage going out into their communities and finding their network, their soldiers, their others, because we can't do this alone. And many of us come into this very isolated and trying to figure it out here when we have a disease and a slick monkey that's telling us what to do to keep us focused on them controlling our dialogue and is in our own voice. So it makes it really hard to discern what's healthy and what's not. We need other people to be our mirrors. And so all of that to be said, people work with me one-on-one. -on -one, and I also offer a podcast, which has been a passion project that I adore. And maybe the two of you could be my guests on that. We would happily, happily oh, join yeah. you. I would love that. Yes, it would be so to. great to have a couple who are in recovery and have been through this journey. Because like you and the way you do conversations to help people feel less alone, that's exactly what the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast is for. I want people to be able to put something in there here and be like, oh my gosh, that's true for them too. And how did they get help and what worked for them? And let me try something. Mm -hmm. So um, those are ways people connect with me. They can find me through my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com or shoot me an email at a Margaret at Embrace Family Recovery. Um, but I'm just, I feel privileged and blessed that my recovery and this get out of Dodge geographical change from Bermuda to Minnesota was given to me. I even feel grateful for my ex-fiance that I was, that he came in my life because I did love him. Um, but I also know that he gave me probably the greatest gift of my life through one of the hardest ways possible, which was finding my own path into recovery. And that's what I want for people. My mission is to educate about this family disease and offer more to the families that are often left out in the dry, hanging out there, trying to figure it out for themselves so that they can be healthier and have more peace and joy in their life again and not stay held hostage by the disease of addiction. Well, this has been 
just just fantastic. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Anytime I want to have you both on. Say again, Matt. So I said thanks for saying yes. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. I I just I get energized talking to people. I love that you're both in recovery and that your story is so out there for people to see there's hope. And so yeah, it was an easy yes. Well, thank you. And everybody, thanks for writing in questions and comments. That makes the conversation even more fun. So we'll be back next Tuesday. Have a fantastic weekend, Margaret. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks, Take Margaret. care, everyone. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. If you enjoyed the content and want to learn more, head over to Facebook to Daily Dose Dr. Mary DD. You can find us on YouTube under Dana DelVal. And if you want to get signed up for our weekly newsletter, email me at D-A-Y-N-A at D-A-Y-N-A-D-E-L-V-A-L.com. Have a great day. We hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.